Tony Evans wrote uh, a little booklet on prayer. And in that booklet, he shares about the power of God. And he uses his own, uh, what do you call that, driving method, or, or rather behavior, right? Behavior or attitude to illustrate the power of God. I have a picture here. Okay. You know what this picture is? This, this is your petrol tank, huh? Petrol tank, okay. How many of you... So there are, there are two types of people in this world, A or B. Now, A is your tank is still full, but then you're like, oh my God, I need to fill up, okay? B is your car is going to stop anytime, but you tell yourself, I can drive another 10 miles, okay? How many of you, A? You're so little, only, huh? How many of you are B? And then all those of you who didn't put up your hand? In the middle. All right. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. In the middle. All right. But Tony Evans, he says that he is B. Okay, Tony Evans is B. And so he says that his normal method of driving with his, is with his car gas tank as near empty as possible. He will only stop at the gas station only as a last resort. And at any time his wife takes the car, she would first ask if there's anything in the tank because most of the time it is empty. And one of the reasons Tony Evans does this is because he has always gotten away with it so very often. And some, you know, somehow he would manage to pull into the gas station just in the nick of time. And so he shares in, his, in the book saying that there was this one time whereby his wife, Louis, was in the car with him. And she kept telling him that he was going to get into trouble someday driving around with an empty gas tank. And sure enough, sure enough, the car started to cough and ran out of gas, but he was able to exit the highway, went downhill the ramp, and there was a gas station at the bottom. And so he turns to his wife and says, See, see what happens when you know Jesus. Okay. Now, before you get any idea about driving that way, let me finish the story. Then he said, Tony Evan goes on to share that he wasn't so fortunate the next time his car ran out of gas and he ended up stranded on the side of the road, standing by his car, feeling extremely embarrassed. And he says this, says this, take it from me, you won't get very far driving around on a near empty tank. You won't get very far driving around on a near empty tank that's a very powerless, frustrating way to travel. You see, friends, a lot of people, we are trying to operate our spiritual life in this mode, B. 
They are running on a near empty tank, trying to get somewhere for the Lord without using the fuel that provides the spark that energizes the power of God resident within us through the Holy Spirit. Now, all of us as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we have the power that comes from God, that comes from the Father. You know, after the resurrection, you know, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared and showed himself to many people. He not only showed himself, but he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And if we remember last week, okay, last week through Pastor Ronald's sharing, you know, one of the convincing proof that Jesus is alive was what? Can you remember or not? Huh? Yes, correct. One of the convincing proof was that he could eat. You remember. So in Luke 24, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, they were shocked and they were frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And then Jesus assures them that he's indeed not a ghost by allowing them to touch him. And he says in verse 39, he says, Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see, as you see I have. And if that was not enough to convince them, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him fish. He took it, ate it in his presence. So Jesus was raised. He resurrected. Then he appeared to his disciples. He convinced them that he is alive. And the text in Acts chapter 1 tells us that he, appears, he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And he actually spoke about the kingdom of God with them. And he gave them this instruction. He said, wait, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you see verse 8, X1 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the power of Jesus. The implication of resurrection is this, that we will receive power through the Holy Spirit. This power of Jesus is made available for all of us who live and walk our lives as disciples of Jesus. And so we'll be looking at three different passages. Okay, sorry, yeah. I don't know why I got grass copper. It's the previous slides, which I forgot to delete. So we're going to look at um, three different uh, areas or different elements of Jesus' power. The first is we will be looking at the power of Jesus' sacrifice. Secondly, we will look at the power of Jesus' love, if you look at your outline. And the third one is the power of Jesus' name. So the first, the power of Jesus' sacrifice, and the text that we are looking at for this is taken from John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. Now, John chapter 10 is about Jesus being the good shepherd. 
And one of the phrases that we see Jesus says repeatedly is that as a good shepherd, he lays down his life for us. I'm not too sure about you, but when we think about the word shepherd, I wonder what image comes to our mind. Is it an image of a person cuddling a cute little lamb? There's a lamb on, on Jesus' shoulder. Now, I really think that it is more than this. It is more than cuddling a cute little lamb. See, to be a shepherd is not easy. The work of a shepherd is very demanding. It is very hard. It not only involves getting your hands dirty, but it involves endangering your life, your very own life. And that's what a good shepherd does. A hired man will not do that. He will not get his hands dirty, and he certainly will not endanger his life for the sake of the sheep. Now, King David would have a glimpse of that experience because he was a shepherd boy. He was not a hired boy. He was a shepherd boy. And if we read his story or his experiences in the Old Testament, we will know how he put his own life in danger in order to defend his flock from the attack of the wild animals. You will read about how he would go after the lion and the bear and struck them down. That's what a shepherd does. A true and good shepherd is the one who would endanger himself if caught upon. And so our Lord Jesus is the true and good shepherd who lays down his life for us, who are his sheep. And Jesus, he was not forced to do that. He was not forced to die for us. He did it willingly. He laid down his life for us on his own accord. It was not Judas Iscariot who sent Jesus to the cross. You know, we think that, you know, Judas, be, you know, so if, if only Judas did not betray Jesus. It's not Judas Iscariot who sent Jesus to the cross. It is not Caiaphas who sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus went to the cross on his own account. He willingly laid down his life for us. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. Now, what's the implication of that great sacrifice? The implication is that we are united and gathered together as one flock. It is his desire, it is Jesus' desire that we be united. And he says it very clearly in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one 
shepherd. So it's not just we, the sheep, are united with Jesus, the shepherd, but we, we have this intimate relationship with the shepherd. Because if you look at verses 14 and 15, I'm going backwards. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep knows me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. You know, friends, we will only be able to know someone when we share lives together. You see, there's, there's a lot of difference between knowing about someone than actually knowing the person. For example, most of you here, you kind of know a lot of things about me, correct? Name, Garimaniam, associate pastor, hometown Ipoh, has an older brother, and those of you who are my friends in Facebook would know that I have one and only nephew. Previous pastorates, Wesley Kampa, Living Faith, uh, drives a blue car. What else do you all know about me? Okay, don't answer, don't answer. <laughs> don't answer. Okay. You see, these are the things that you know about me. But you would not really know me unless I share my life experiences and my life stories with you. You will not really know me unless I share with you my joy and my happiness, as well as my pain and my struggles. It is when I share my life with you and you share your life with me that we begin to know each other. In the same manner, Jesus, who is our good shepherd, knows us in and out. He not just know about you, like how many hair you have, how many strands of hair you have, but he actually knows you. There is no doubt of that. He knows, how, he, he knows your joy. He knows your pain. He knows what we need and what we want. You know, if you study economics, there's a difference between need and want, right? There are things that we need, and there are things that we die-die also we want, right? Need and want. He knows that. He, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves at times. So he knows us, and he invites us to know him. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me. You know, Jesus shares his life with his disciples. You know, a lot of times we see in the gospel that he allows himself to be seen by his disciples, even if it was a low moment. I give you one example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? If, if, let me read to you Mark 14. If, I think I have it here. Okay, Mark 14, 32 to 34. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. See, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here, while I, sit here while I pray. Then he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus says to them. 
Jesus actually allowed himself to be seen in that manner. In that low moment, in that moment of vulnerability, he allows himself to be seen. And the question to us is, do we allow ourselves to be seen by Jesus in such a deep manner? Of course, in our mind, we say, Jesus knows all things now. He knows, no need to tell him, he knows. But if we ask our hearts truly that question, would we allow Jesus to see us in that manner? I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me. Moving on, secondly, the power of Jesus' love and the text that we are looking at for this is taken from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 24. And this passage basically says in verse 16, do I, do I have it? I don't, okay, I don't have it. Okay, verse 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In some sense, it's connected to the previous passage. And so, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that's the nature of Jesus' love for us. Now, the implication of that is we ought to lay down our lives for others. It certainly does not mean that we die literally for another person. It doesn't mean that. Right? We are actually called to love one another. And the, and the writer of 1 John actually applies this in a very down-to-earth manner. If you look at verse 17, he says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, he says, If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, if you're looking at this verse and you're thinking, Pastor, this verse is not for me. This verse is for those who have material possessions. So it's not related to me. Now, if you're sitting here thinking likewise, then I believe we are missing the point here. You see, all of us, we have the ability and we have the capacity to love because Christ loves us. All of us here, we have the ability and the capacity to reach out to people because Christ has reached out to us first. So the point is not whether we have material possession. The point is, having, the point is whether we have pity on a fellow brother or sister in need. The verse says, when you see a person in need and have no pity on him or her, how can the love of God be in us? Now, what does that mean? It means that when we see a person in need, when we see a person in need and then we turn around away from that person, it's like no eye see. La. No, in Cantonese, it's mong an thai. No eye see. I didn't see, and we turn away, then how can the love of God be in us? And the New Living Translation, there's two other translations. The New Living Translation uses these words, 
uh, this, this phrase, sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion. And the English Standard Version actually says this, sees a brother or sister in need yet closes his heart against him. Okay? So, friends, you know, just as Christ has loved us, just as Christ has shown compassion to us, and just as Christ has opened his heart for us and shared his life for us, we ought to do likewise. That's the implication. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot live our lives in a cocoon, me, myself, and I. Okay? You know, my life is good, my job is secure, and my family is taken care of. But what about the other families who are struggling? Do we pay attention to them, or rather, do we open our hearts towards them? You know, sometimes we have problems, in fact, seeing if there is a need in someone because we sometimes don't really pay attention. You know, in church, let me be honest with you, sometimes I am also guilty of this. Just don't pay attention. Nah. You are so busy. Just don't pay attention nah, to what's happening. You know, I once had this very embarrassing experience. This is probably 10 years ago. I was in Ipoh at that time. Okay, Ipoh at that time. And the, C and the CG that was, I was part of was meeting in my house that particular week. And so when my CG meets in my house, my parents would usually find a place to go. They won't be at home, lah, all right? Okay, so they, they won't be in the house, so they will, they will go out. So they will go out, right? So halfway through the CG meeting, a girl was at my gate. And she was calling. Okay, she was calling. So I went to the door, to, uh, went to the gate to see, to see her. And she was asking for my parents. Okay, she was asking for my parents. And I said, well, they're they are out. They're out, but who are you? It's a very normal question. They're out, but who are you? She looks at me and said, I'm your neighbor. I was like, you're my neighbor? Oh, I'm so sorry, yes, I didn't know. And after she left, and as I turned and looked at my CG members, all eyes were fixed on me. And one of them asked, Gauri, how can you not know your neighbour? This particular neighbour has just moved in probably a month or two months already. And because the house, because the previous owners, my previous owner and the house that she was living, the previous owner, they had a dispute. And because of the dispute, they built a wall across Zook. I cannot see there, they cannot see here. Okay? So every day I come out and in, in of the house, I don't actually, I don't know what's happening there because there's this wall that, is, that's, that was built across. But clearly she met my parents lah. Clearly, they talked, right? And there was no excuse. I cannot use the excuse of there's a wall there, so I didn't know who was there. Because that question that my CG member asked me, Gauri, how can you not know your neighbor, was painfully embarrassing. You know, friends, all of us have the ability and the capacity to love and to reach out but we can only begin to do that when we begin to pay attention to the people around us. 
Let us learn to do that by the grace of God. Moving on lastly, the power of Jesus' name. The text that we're looking at for this is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. If you remember, Pastor Ronald walked us through this story last week, remember? Remember or not? Remember? Right, so I'm not going to walk you through this story because it has really been walked through. So we know that it's a story about how Peter and John healed a crippled beggar. And here in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12, they are being questioned for that act. And the question that they asked Peter and John was, by what power? Okay, this, this is the passage, right? By what power or what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Friends, there is just so much power in the name of Jesus. Power in the name of Jesus proves to us that Jesus is alive. Because how can there be power if Jesus was dead? There is no power in a dead man. There is only power in the risen man. There is power in Jesus' name because Jesus is alive. And it's very interesting to note that the very people who was questioning Peter and John were the very people who was involved in crucifying Jesus. And if you look at the bulletin, the third question that I've put under think, reflect, and act on it is, uh, do we consciously do the work that God has called us to in the power of Jesus' name? Do we consciously do the work that God has called us to do in the power of Jesus' name? You see, Peter and John are, in a sense, excellent examples of people who do the work of God in the power of Jesus' name. Why? Because if we read further down, we will realize that Peter and John were both unschooled, ordinary men. But look what happens when an unschooled, ordinary man taps onto the power of God. He becomes a courageous man, he becomes bold, and he becomes fearless. You know, friends, skills and knowledge to do a particular ministry can be acquired. For example, if you want to be part of the worship team, you want to play the instruments, you go learn. It can be acquired. You learn, right? If you want to teach, you go attend classes and get yourself equipped. Skills and knowledge can be acquired, but courage, on the other hand, comes from the power of God. Peter and John were courageous in the midst of being questioned. They never swayed from the truth. 
And that's the kind of courage that we need, my dear friends, when we do the work that God has called us to do. That's the kind of courage we need to help us keep persevering as we do the work of God. So friends, remember that this power of Jesus is made available to all of us because we have placed our trust in him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for making your power available for us. Help us, Lord, to truly be disciples of Jesus. Help us, Lord, as we have experienced your love in our lives, help us, Lord, to love one another and to reach out to one another and to pay attention to one another. We ask, Lord, for your grace for us in order to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.